Good morning, New Life Manitou. I'm glad to see you in the room. If you're online, I'm glad you see me. It's feel good about that, I guess. It is the third day of Christmas, and I'm waiting on my French hens. If you've got them, please bring them to me after. No, in all seriousness, we're in, we're in Christmas tide. is where we are in the church calendar. This is the third day of Christmas. It's not just like a silly song. Um, the 12 days that follow Christmas are also Christmas. Um, they, they, uh, one day isn't long enough to celebrate the reality that God has come among us as one of us. It's, it's really good news. Yeah, it's really good news. So Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas. Um, and so we finally come out of the season of Advent, and we have arrived at Christmas, and we're going to be in, Ma- or we, yeah, we've arrived at Christmas, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 this morning. Um, during Advent, le- leading up to Christmas, we've uh, been exploring the four traditional virtues um, uh, tr- traditionally associated with this season. Uh, they are, of course, hope, peace joy, and finally, above all things, love. Um, And to help us think about love this morning, um, I want to read a familiar passage um, that's quite appropriate for um, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And so Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, I told you it was appropriate, um, in Judea, that was my joke. Um, it's the only one I've got this morning, so you better enjoy it. Uh, during the time of King Herod, Magi, everyone say Magi, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem, verse 2, and asked, where is the one uh, who has been born King of the Jews, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. That's Micah chapter 5, if you're curious. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out uh, from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go, search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they, after they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child and his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord, and all God's people said, thanks be to God. Jesus, you are the one who has come, and you are coming, and you will come again. And we invite you in this space right now to come and speak. We need you to speak resurrection life into us 
and through us into our families, into our neighborhoods, and into this city. That's beyond us, so do it. Do it, Jesus. We ask, come and speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So the long-awaited king of the Jews, according to this story, verse 2, has been born, but he's, uh, he's a king born for more than just the Jewish people. It's what Matthew, it's funny, Matthew opens his gospel um, by having the nations come to, to, uh, to Judea, and then it, he ends his gospel by sending, with the Great Commission, by sending um, the uh, the Judeans, his disciples, out among the nations. Um, so Jesus is a king that draws all people to himself. And that's true even when he's just like toddler Jesus, is apparently when, uh, what, he, what he is here in Matthew chapter 2. From his youngest of days, Jesus is drawing the least deserving, least expected, people to himself, and they have come to worship and to honor him. Now, wait a second, Brett. What are you talking about here? This is the Magi that we're talking about. Well, yes, that's exactly what we're talking about here. Um, we are so familiar with um, this story and it being placed in nativity scenes and the crowns on people on Magi's head and whatever, that I think we miss the scandal of what Ma- uh, Matthew is opening his gospel with right here. Matthew is telling the story of Magi of all people, Magoi, is coming to honor, to worship this child. Um, you can go ahead and throw that slide up, Billy. Uh, magi, Magoi, Magos in the, in the Greek is the Greek word from, um, can you guess where, it's the word for magician is actually what this word, most frequently in this in this opening of Matthew, it gets translated as wise men, is what it gets translated, because apparently these travelers were well, well studied. But um, I, that really is pulling the punch here. Um, if, what have they been studying? They've been studying the stars. <laughs> if you look in early Jewish and Christian writings, um, Magoi, and their practices are described in exclusively negative terms. In Acts chapter 8, I don't know if you're familiar with the story, perhaps you remember it, Peter and John meet a shady mag, he's practicing magic, Um, it's the same word, Um, shady guy named Simon, Simon the sorcerer, that's right, Simon the Magos, Uh, he's a guy who's either been swindling people out of money with uh, cheap tricks or he's actually tapping into some sort of like dark power in the universe. In Acts 13, uh, these are the only other places in the New Testament this word gets used. Um, there is a magos described as Elimos, also known as Bar Yeshua or Bar Jesus, is his son of Jesus, is what he, and he is, he's, he's named, it's translated there, you can look it up. A sorcerer. Um, being a magos, a magician, a, a magi is not exactly a great thing in the eyes of the people of God. Um, And these magi, these magoi, are coming from the east is where they're coming from, from what used to be 
Babylon. <laughs> it's where they're evidently coming from, an educated guess by scholars. And they are following a star. So can we please recover what a scandal Matthew opens his gospel with? These are guys following the ancient paths and ways of the Babylonian astrologers. It's what we've got right here. Just, I want you to just listen. It's going to be up here on the screen, but listen to the way that the Hebrew prophetic tradition talks about Babylonian astrologers. And Isaiah uh, 47, so it's four chapters after the streams of desert in, or streams in the desert. Um, there's explicitly denouncing, the voice of Isaiah is explicitly denouncing Babylon and says, verse 10, you have trusted in your wickedness and have said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and knowledge mislead you when you say to yourself, I am, and there is none beside me. Disaster will come on you, upon you, and you will not know how to conjure it away. A calamity will fall upon you that you cannot ward off with a ransom. A catastrophe you cannot foresee will suddenly come upon you. Keep on then with your magic spells, with your many sorceries, which you have labored at since childhood. Perhaps you will succeed. Perhaps you will cause terror. All the counsel you have received has only worn you out. Out. Let your astrologers come forward. Let those stargazers who make predictions month by month, let them save you from what is coming upon you. Surely they are like stubble. The fire will burn them up. They cannot even save themselves from the power of the flame. These are not coals for warmth. This is not a fire to sit by. That is all they are to you. These you have dealt with and labored with since childhood. All of them go on in their error. There is not one that can save you. That is sweeping language used by the prophets to condemn not only Babylon, but anyone who practiced magic or sorcery or astrology, let the stargazers, in the, the verse 13, let the stargazers and astrologers, let, let them come forward, says the voice of Isaiah. They're good for what? For nothing. Those kind of people don't have power to stop the coming fall of Babylon, Isaiah is saying. These people are powerless even to save themselves, <laughs> what Isaiah says. The disaster that's, co that's coming on Babylon, it's going to consume them too. The fire is going to burn them up. These guys, Magoi, are enemies of God's people. But suddenly, with the arrival of Christmas, we have a scandal <laughs> the arrival of Jesus into the world, God is drawing even his enemies to himself. Christmas reveals God as enemy embracing love. 
is the scandal of Christmas. These are exactly, it shows that this word shows up um, just in one chapter of the Old Testament. Um, These are the kind of people explicitly mentioned in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar trying to interpret his dream in Daniel chapter two. These are not the good guys. These, These are the wrong kinds of people. These are Eastern sorcerers, Babylonian astrologers, the kind of people that the prophets denounced. But now, God's love is drawing them, even, even them, even Babylonian astrologers are being drawn into the embrace of Jesus. And all of these centuries later, they're they're still just as powerless as they were back in the day with Isaiah. They're still obsessing over the wrong sorts of things. They're still, what are they studying? The stars! They're still stargazing. They're still idolaters. But Christmas shows us the love of God who meets us where we are. And God's love is always finding us, always guiding us. You need to hear this this morning. The love of God finds you even in your idolatry. The love of God finds you even in your sin. The love of God is going to guide you even in your stargazing. These people are looking for truth, I would presume, um, in the best way that they knew how to look, and God meets them where they are and guides them. And for some of us, this is really, really stretching. It's like, wait a second. God, because God's kindness and God's love, it defies all of the neat, clean categories that we have about how God should work. Well, he should. He should be this way. He shouldn't, shouldn't get his hands dirty and he shouldn't mess with those things over there. Many of us were taught that sin is actually explicitly the one place where not only God won't meet us, but God can't. Be careful anytime you say God can't, but God can't meet us. But if God didn't meet us in our sin, God wouldn't be meeting anyone. He wouldn't be meeting any one of us. Thank God, God meets us in our sin. God reveals himself to us. We could say it this way. God, God's love gladly finds us first and frequently in sin. That's worth celebrating, my brothers and sisters. God is good and kind. God loves us. He meets us first and frequently in our sin. The scandal of the Magi tells us that you have not drifted too far. You have not. You are not beyond hope. You have not excluded yourself from the love of God. The love of God is for you. It's for you. God loves even the Magi, even you, even me. Brett Davis, of all people, he loves. God's love keeps shining on us like a a star 
in drawing people into his embrace. But notice verse one, how it actually plays out. The Magi are not immediately brought to Bethlehem. That's what we, that would be the path of least resistance or the most direct route. But uh, they're brought, uh, they're not immediately brought to the presence of Matthew 1 calls him Emmanuel, God with us. God has revealed himself, shown his love on these guys and brought them to Jerusalem is where he brought them. Uh, And from that point on, the Magi are directed by Scripture. Is where they're, they're suddenly the old story from Daniel 12 of the king of Babylon summoning all of his sorcerers and soothsayers and magi. And can you interpret this dream for me? It gets turned on its head because now it's the king of Jerusalem that's summoning all of his chief priests and his scribes and the Bible nerds and come over here. And they are actually teaching the soothsaying magi how to read the scriptures. Uh, verse five and six says, well, you, you don't need to stay here. You need to go to Bethlehem <laughs> in Judea. That's what the prophet Micah said. So God met them where they're at, but he eventually steered them with scripture. Scripture is what gets them all the way to the child, all the way to Jesus. We could say, say it this way. Uh, God finds us in our sin and then he draws us out of it. <laughs> it's the whole reason God is meeting us in our sin is because he's wanting something better for us. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to meet you, and then I'm going to steer you a different way. As a parent, I've uh, started recognizing that the way God feels about sin a lot of times um, is the way that I feel about, I think, about a dirty diaper. <laughs> it's, Horrible. <laughs> unclean, unclean. Um, but uh, I want to get rid of it. I want to like clean it up. Um, but I would never, ever, ever dream of throwing the baby out with the diaper. No matter, no matter how grave the mess or the uncleanness. One of the chief reasons I actually dislike the mess of the diaper so much is because I care so much for the wellness of my child. And you are his child. I don't refuse to meet my child in their mess. (laughs) I scoop them up and I hold them. And I've gotten mess on me sometimes. But my love, me being evil, my love compels me to meet them in their mess to get them out of it. Because I want them fully alive and fully well. So too with God. So too with God. God finds us in our sin. He found the magi in their astrology. Um, But God doesn't leave us there. Through it all, God draws them to Scripture, and Scripture draws them to Jesus. This is the way that God always works. No matter how good we look on the outside, no matter how bad we look on the outside, we are all Babylonian astrologers. And God is meeting all of us. All of us. Every single one of us in our powerlessness to save ourselves, in our darkness, in our sin, and he's drawing us into his loving embrace. 
That's where the, the story ends. He draws them to the child and they're absolute, verse 10 says they're absolutely overwhelmed with joy. The journey has been worth it. They are brought into the presence of it, God with us, where they can, verse 11, where they can worship him with their gifts. That's the, with the, the love of God draws us to a place where we can pour out our gifts and love those around us and serve that. Um, but we need to, I, I'm suspicious, we need to camp out here for just a second. It's easy to pivot to the love that we give to one another and not be br- having our, our breath taken away by the scandal of the unilateral love of God for you, no matter where you are or what you're doing. That's, I want to camp out there for just another second because that is what transforms lives. It is not moralism. It's not saying clean up your act. That Baby, in your diaper, clean up. That is not what changes your life. What changes your life is recognizing that in all of my mess and all of my helplessness, I am overwhelmingly, infinitely loved by God. That's what the least Jewish, the, yeah, it's... Don't worry, we're still going there. The, the least Jewish, the least expected, the least deserving of all people end up discovering the presence of God. These, these guys, we could say it this way, they, they, these guys didn't know while they were gazing at the stars that the, the stars are gazing back. You know, these guys have been chasing the heavens in all kinds of like unhelpful ways, but they didn't know that the heavens are actually behind you. The hound of heaven is after you and he's going to catch you. They discover that they have been caught up in something they weren't planning on and they discover the mystery of faith toddling around in a small house in Bethlehem. We need to talk about the love of God this way. God is now part of the human family. That's the mystery of Christmas. This is the scandal of the Christian faith. God has become a human being. I mean, talk about God getting some mess on him. (laughs) That's the whole point of what Christians call the incarnation is the $3 word for it. God has fully and forever not stood at a distance, but become one of us. This is what Christians believe and confess. God has entered into every bit of our lives. Your mess is not too great. In fact, your mess is where God is presently meeting you. We can change the metaphor for just a moment um, from the mess of a diaper to maybe the struggle of of sickness. Um, There's a long tradition in the church recognizing that sin is not just um, a bad thing we do, like you stub your toe and you say the you know, colorful word. Um, that, that's, I grew up in a tradition that is like, shakes finger, that's sin. Um, but uh, that's actually a trivialization of sin. Sin's much deeper than that. It's, it's pervaded the entire human experience so that it's not just things we do. It's actually like a kind of sickness of the soul, of the human condition of this world, a sickness, a corruption of who we were who we were actually made to be. Um, this is a picture right here of um, Ashley Jewett and her, um, and her five-year-old Maddie. 
Um, and when little Maddie was diagnosed with a blood cancer, her mom, Ashley, along with the rest of her family, dad, brother, grandpa, all shaved their heads in solidarity with her. If your hair goes, my hair goes. I'm with you. We are with you. And when we hear stories like this, even of, um, I got permission to say this, um, but even like Ash, um, little Ashley Martin and Sarah Martin, our former um, music uh, associate or music pastor here, um, when we hear stories like this, something deep stirs within us and says, oh, how beautiful and good that is, that kind of solidarity with someone and something deep within us just like aches because we wish we could do more. You know, like as close as I get, I can't get in there with you. Any parent in the room, um, or if you've got like a loved one that's struggling with something in the room, you're, you're shaving my head is not nearly enough, but it's, it's what I can do. It's what I can do. If I could take the thing itself, I would. Um, this is our uh, youngest daughter, Daisy, when she was uh, about nine months old, and she was in ICU for uh, nearly a week with breathing difficulties. It ended up being a very beautiful picture of a very, very, um, I snapped it really quickly in faith that she was going to be okay. Um, she, she wasn't just like on oxygen. She has a mask um, sealed around her face, forcing oxygen into her lungs. And so I hope you'll forgive me if I'm wearing a mask a lot because I've seen somebody struggling for, for air. Um, Joy and I had a scary conversation with the doctor where she told us, this doctor told us that the next step, the last step would be uh, intubating her. And that wasn't going to be a good... In, in that moment, if I could have taken the inflammation from her lungs and carried it in my lungs, even though it killed me, I would do it. Like, in a moment, I would do it. In a heartbeat. Like, we shave our heads with others, and we pray at the beds of nine-month-old little babies because it's all we can do. We can't actually enter into it with them. But the mystery of the Christian faith is that this is exactly what God has done in Jesus. The toddling little child encountered by the Magi is Emmanuel, is God with us, entering into the actual thing of our lives with us and for us. God has become part of the human family. He has entered into our experience Fully, God the Son, now and forever, let this scandal blow your mind, shares the DNA of, and maybe even the nose, of a first century Jewish peasant named Mary. That's the, the mind-boggling scandal of the Christian faith. God has skin in the game. It's like literally at this point, it's a scandal, I know, but God has a mother. God, that's traditional historic Orthodox language about it. The Theotokos is what the word is. Uh, God, too, has a body that aches. He knows what it's like. God, too, has friends. God, too, has experienced betrayal from a friend. God, too, enjoys good food and good conversation. God, 
knows what it's like. God, too, has hungered. God, too, has suffered. God, too, has been confused. My God, my God. God, too, has died. And God doesn't just, he doesn't just meet us halfway. He, he comes in, he meets the, the Magi whole way in our human experience. He meets us. He's actually not just going to meet them in their sin. He's actually going to carry their sin. God has entered into the human experience not, and not just gotten like a little bit of mess on him. He's taken the depths of our sin sickness, everything that you're ashamed of, every bit of it, square inch of shadow across your soul. He has carried it in his body on the cross. We could say it this way. God has rushed into our brokenness. Of course God has. That's what love does. That's who God is. That you couldn't stop him from doing it. The, the idea that God is Zeus or Odin or some sort of like figure up on a mountain somewhere, very like detached from you, needs to die. And you need to let Ashley Jewett with her shaved head replace that image of God. You couldn't stop God from being close to you and rushing into every bit of you, far from being too messy or too sick or too broken for God to find you. You can't stop him. God doesn't just meet us in our sin. God takes it and he carries it and he suffers it and he dies in it. And then three days later, he comes walking out of the tomb and says, okay, I'm leaving all that right there in the grave. Now, uh, how about we get down to the business of letting me get resurrection life into you? That's what God is like. The heavens have chased us further and harder than we could have ever imagined. God is now one of us. God the Son has become one of us. The great theologian Robert Jensen put it this way, kind of tongue-in-cheek. He says, one way of saying what happened with Jesus is that Jesus so attached himself to you that if God the Father wants his Son, he is stuck with you too. He's saying it tongue-in-cheek, but like that that's because the whole point, he believes that it's not a division between father and son in the Trinity. It's this is, if, if for some reason there was, God can't get himself out of humanity at this point. He's like got skin in the game. He's fully invested in you. He chooses to be stuck with us, is what Jensen's saying here. There was a time that perhaps we could have imagined God high on a mountain like Odin or Zeus, detached like, oh, well, if the human race, if, you know, if Brett or Joe or Bonnie or John or any one of us like goes away and your destiny doesn't really matter to me because I'm up here playing golf on Mount Olympus. That is gone now. That's gone. Those days are behind us. God has skin in the game. He's one of us. He is rushed in. Good luck stopping him. He's scooping you up. Despite all of your darkness, all of your powerlessness, all of your sin, God is fully and forever invested in your destiny. God is with us and will never, ever, ever, ever forsake us. The story of Jesus, the child, God, the toddler, drawing 
and meeting some magi means that wherever and however you are, God's love is pulling you into life. Wherever, however you are, God's love is pulling you into life. God is not far. God is close. And you may not have realized it yet, but one day you will. The heavens are chasing you. The love of God is chasing you, even in your stargazing, even in your idolatry, your waywardness, even in that thing, that situation, that unthinkable place that you would never share. The love of God is pursuing you and meeting you. Before you can give him anything, gold, myrrh, time, energy, money, attention, before you can do anything helpless like a baby in mess, God is already giving to you, meeting you guiding you, and he's inviting you out of sin and into new life. And so, as the band comes this morning, I want to create just a little bit of space before we come to the table that, like, can we all stand together before Joe leads us to the table? And maybe if you're, if you're comfortable, open your hands. And for some of us, um, I just have the sense that for some of us, this might be um, a decisive linchpin of a morning for you where you say, I yield. I yield. I'm going to stop running. I'm going to let the hound of heaven catch me. For some of you, you just need to hear that God loves you and maybe open your life to him this morning. So I invite you right now, um, if that's you, (laughs) there's no magic words. I I almost never do this, but um, this morning, if that's you, I just invite you to say, Jesus, I'm yours. You don't have to say it out loud. You can say it in the depths of your soul. It's not the words that matter. It's your yielding that matters. You're already being chased. God's already claiming you. All that's left to do is to say, Jesus, I'm yours. Jesus, I'm yours. Jesus, we are yours. And so if that's you this morning, and it's like maybe like a, feels like a really important time in your life, um, Joe or I or any of the staff here we would love to like connect with you and talk to you about that yielding about like what that means and, and just help you understand it a little more. Jesus, as we come to your table, we ask that you would help us recognize that we are not too far, that you actually use stars to draw us into your life. And so Thank you that you have drawn us this morning to this place and thank you that you are drawing us to this table this morning. Open our eyes and our hearts to your words this morning.